Hi, this is Chris Castle, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Music Week, Hypnosis founder Merck Mercuriatus's message to the majors. From Flypaper, five artists that blew up on TikTok first. From Hypebot, advice for new artists from Def Jam's VP of Digital Marketing, J.D. Tominski. And from Loudwire, musicians warning fans about the music industry. And boy, this one is a touchy one. Yes, this is episode 56. You are with the Your Morning Coffee podcast, and here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, it's going to be a toasty day here in Southern California. Triple digits here. Yes, it is. And we are ensconced in our mansions where it's nice and cool, hanging out, (laughs) dipping my feet in the pool as we speak right now. Oh, of course. Exactly. So good to see you. we got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, we sure do. A lot of cool articles that you have put forth in the newsletter. And it's, you know, it's it's almost fall. We're in September already, which is just, God, you know, the, the, the... the months, the days, they just yeah. chug fast, man. It's amazing. doesn't feel like fall yet. Um, still feels like summer with this heat, but hopefully things will start cooling down a little bit. I hope so. Exactly. Uh, by the way, the guy that I get to spend my Sundays with uh, is the, none other than Jay Gilbert. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which you better know by now is weekly music news for the new music business and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music, and Fox Home Entertainment and somebody that I talk with for a good half hour before we even hit record every, every week. weekend. Exactly. Every week. And uh, and I look forward to it. And Mike is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. Yeah, all true. And we, <laughs> we were just talking before we hit record about your various stops along the way, your career stops. And <laughs> it's, yeah. it's hard. You know, I, I'm always, there are a handful of people that have managed to stay at companies for a long, long time. Although you were at, you were at, at before it was Universal, you were actually at MCA and in, yeah. into Universal for a good long time. Yeah, if you, if you added 
both of the times I worked there, it's it's 18 years. That's a long so time. 18 years at one company is a long time. But of course, I had a different job every three to four years within that. <laughs> yes. But my, what a tangled web we weave. Yeah. it's it's a, When you get on the conveyor belt, sometimes it just throws you off and then you climb back up and <laughs> it's going in a different direction. It's that's a, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Hey, did you, did you happen to see that piece... Um, on Soundfly's blog, um, which is called Flypaper, they did a nice little, uh, nice little kudos to uh, your morning coffee. They that did. Was it, cool. was, it was nine vital newsletters all musicians should be on in 2021. And uh, if you read the article right at the top there, they would talked about your newsletter, of course, and then they also gave us a shout out for the podcast. So it was that's right. Lovely. So to thank hear from you them. to Soundfly. By the way. Um, I know you're aware of Soundfly, but for for those that aren't, it's a great little platform, a community of, you know, writers, performers, engineers, you know, just anybody involved in music. If you want some information, mentorship, you want to commiserate, it's a great platform. It's it's actually awesome. Um, and it's really diverse in terms of the, the skills that you can learn and they have workshops and things like that. But it's it's kind of the it, it's it's really geared in many ways to the 21st century musician. So they talk about arranging, they talk about beat creation, they talk about mastering, they talk about all kinds of things in the scope that producers and writers are are using these days. And it's really, really awesome. So And I, I, let's let's be clear that we're not giving them a plug because they said nice things about us. No. They're really actually quite cool. But if you do say nice things about us, maybe <laughs> <laughs> we talk about you a little bit more than we normally oh, would. Absolutely. Hey, by the way, you know, we, when we are, it's such a pleasure to put this show together, but we could not do it without the wonderful help of our sponsors. And Jay and I uh, recognize our blessings every week because we work with some fantastic folks. And in, yeah, in every case, people that we have a long history with in terms of just our knowledge base and using them. And uh, yeah, we're really, really lucky. And, you know, one of our, our newest sponsor actually is TiVo Music Metadata, dedicated to bringing order to the chaos of digital music. TiVo Meta, TiVo, <laughs> and it's, it's too many M's apparently. Uh, TiVo <laughs> Music Metadata offers obsessively deduplicated artist album and song IDs, expert written editorial content and ratings, verified images, weighted deep descriptors, similar artists, band members, and influences, authoritative credits, personalization, discovery and search APIs, purpose-built solutions for classical music, and a global connected car platform linking broadcast radio with streaming. To learn more, go visit www.tivo.com slash music. Yeah, I, I love that company so much. I'm such a big fan of metadata and just data in general. And they are the masters at this mm -hmm. stuff and the kind of data that they have on all of these different artists and releases. And, and let's face it, there are, you know, I ran into this in the last month, two artists that have the same name as right. other artists. And you mentioned this word, which I had never heard before, deduplicated, which I think is awesome. Yes. And they can help separate it. So when you go onto your DSP of choice or whatever, and you're looking for your artist, that you get the right one. So that's pretty cool. Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our good friends at Bandzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, like hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and merch commission-free, 
commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, MORNINGCOFFEE, and you'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot, and sister music uh, blog music think and sister blog music think tank <laughs> are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And boy, Bands in Town, over 55 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, recommendations and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. TiVo Music, yeah. Metadata, yeah. Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. When, when you stumbled on that word, which I do every single week, um, it reminded me of this this really cool saying I heard one time where they, they said that uh, some nights you're Gladys and other nights the pips got to hold it down. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and you know, um, it, when, when you have multiple words with the, start with the same letter, and, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. What are you going to do? Oh, we butcher names and things every week and we just beg for forgiveness. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. Yes, indeed. Well, let's jump in, Jay, to uh, uh, to our stories. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one from Music Week, uh, hypnosis founder Merc. Now you tell me his last name. Merc Mercuriatus. Mercuriatus. Message to the majors. A really interesting article. And well, when we were talking about uh, before we actually hit the record button this morning, that you did work with him at Sanctuary back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I've I've crossed paths with Merc a few times uh, when I worked at Sanctuary. He was running the show at Sanctuary. It was such a fun company to work for. And um, I got, had a chance to meet him there. And then years later um, with UME, their catalog division, um, he was managing Elton John for a period. So we, we spoke again uh, then. And I had reached out um, within the last year or so just about hypnosis. Um, but I'll tell you, Merck is, is a very experienced guy. He's got integrity, he's hardworking, super smart, and hypnosis, as you've probably known if you've read your morning coffee or been watching the news, hypnosis is kind of leading the charge into um, investing and buying up rights, music rights, and, um, and uh, people are making uh, good money from that, but he's also kind of an advocate for the songwriter. Yes. And he always says, you know, without, without the song, there is no music business. And, um, he talks in this, uh, piece a little bit about the DCMS. And I just, before we get into this story, I wanted to remind our, our listeners about the DCMS. This is that UK parliament committee, digital culture, media, and sport committee. That's the DCMS. And, um, I was looking for something to kind of explain what they do to a friend of mine, and I pulled this from their website, and I'm just going to read this one little quote, and then we can dive in. Um, so this is their, their select committee uh, you know, on the digital streaming that we've been talking about lately. It is our responsibility to scrutinize the work of the Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sport 
and its associated public bodies, including the BBC, because they're Mm UK-based. We examine government policy, spending, and administration on behalf of the electorate and the House of Commons. It is chaired by uh, Julian Knight, a member of parliament. So that's that's their... uh, mandate that's what they do that's their deal and one of the things yep. that that he, he that he was pleased with clearly is kind of the uh accelerating the shift and don't forget you know he's kind of talking about where songwriters sit in the economic equation so that's really the the perspective that he's coming from and, and all again all of these he's not buying necessarily masters or anything like that he's buying their publishing their their songwriting publishing and he is of course has basically said that you know they they haven't, in his opinion, they haven't really been been kind of had a seat at the table, or or, or, or their importance has not been emphasized like it should, and that is right. certainly the way where, where all of these kind of funds are are coming from in terms of jumping in and 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 picking up the songwriting publishing and and talking about their importance, and so yeah. he was saying that 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 shift to to the importance of songwriting that that he he said i thought that was probably work that would have taken seven years or so to do but now i think it will take two or three years to do because of the incredible work by the dcms so he really was was pleased that 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 happened and that it was kind of pushing that shift forward in a a way that wouldn't have happened without that kind of government intervention yeah yeah and you know the the music business is now growing due to streaming after Mm -hmm. some lean years. And what I love about uh, what Merck is talking about here is that he was praising um, Sony Music, you know, that move to open up DSP royalties for legacy artists as part of its new artist forward initiative, right? And and Merck says, you know, when we started three years ago, there were barely 100 million paid subscribers to music streaming services. Today, there are 487 million and by the time we get to the end of the decade, there will be two billion, he said. You know, we're talking about an industry that's going to grow by almost five times in the space of the next eight or nine years. And this is the reason why companies like Hypnosis are doing what they're doing is because now finally we have a little bit of predictability. Yeah. We have it's almost not quite because it is art, but there is a math equation here. When you think about it, especially when you've got a catalog of one of these superstar artists that you and I have been talking about, whether it's Bob Dylan, Stevie Mm -hmm. Nicks, whoever, there's some predictability now going into this streaming world. And so he just wants to make sure, um, you know, that everybody gets paid, including those songwriters. Right. And he did throw a little bit of a stink bomb uh, into this uh, interview. And he said, I believe the reason that the songwriter is the low man or woman in the economic equation is because the three biggest publishers in the world aren't advocating for songwriters, and get this, because they're owned and controlled by the three biggest recorded music companies. Oh, That's key. Yes, it is. Oh, Yeah, that, that one really jumped out at me. Um, and he, he also talks about how consumption of music in years past wasn't always monetized, wasn't always paid. Yeah, that's properly. really interesting. Yeah. And that going forward, it really, it really is. He talks about the rise of streaming platforms. You know that it, now it's considered, um, you know, uh, this utility purchase as opposed to a luxury pur- purchase. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things he he mentions in here is that. Almost all consumption of music today is paid consumption. If you're streaming, you're paying for it. If you're listening on the radio, fees and royalties are being paid. 
If you're on social media, royalties are being paid, fees are being paid. If you're on your Peloton bike doing your exercise class, again, it's the same thing. You're getting paid. So, you know, 10 years ago, almost all consumption of music was unpaid consumption, he says. Today, almost all consumption of music is paid consumption. These two things have dramatically changed the world of economics uh, or of our world to make it possible to remunerate the songwriter fairly and equitably. And that's really the bottom line to a lot of, you know, the, the DCMS and some of the investigations that are going on now here in the United States. It's really about, I think, transparency mm-hmm. and about kind of the fairness of where does that money flow? Right. And, and again, a really interesting take on that, on that kind of consumption and and how how everything is being paid now and that really yeah. shines a light on the business side of things and why this is such a hot area these days of all these different funds that are that are buying uh, catalog publishing catalogs and so yeah i think he's a hundred percent dead on and yeah i hadn't just, thought about that i haven't know, when about and he, he's right when, once once i read this i was starting to think Wow, that's really true. Regardless of whether you think the payouts are fair, we'll get to that. But at least in this digital world, it's it's improving, you know, with the Music Modernization Act and the MLC and these you and I talked about this recently how some of these laws have been on the books for like a hundred years. Yeah. You know? So it's so cool to see progress being made uh, finally. And look, some people aren't super happy with what Merck's doing. Uh, mm-hmm. They feel like maybe he's jacking up some of the uh, the prices. Values, right. Yeah, because he's giving large multiples. Um, maybe some criticize him for that. But there are also artist advocates who praise him for it. And we're talking, you know, like billions of dollars. I think he's on $2 billion so far that they've spent or close to it. You know, this is, this is a big deal. Well, and like everything kind of in life at the time, what what, what seems expensive in the time and place that the purchase was made, when you look in the rear view mirror, some years down the road, it seems like, wow, that was a hell of a deal. And that guy was, you know, like, you know, real estate or whatever, you know, things like that always happen where you, at the time it's a push, man. You feel like, yeah, that's, that's more money than I thought that was really worth. But, but over time, indeed. And that's, you know, again, that, that the way he described that really puts into, into focus why a lot of these large, investors that typically would not have been in this space are in this space because of yeah. that predictability. And that's obviously what they're looking for. For, for yeah. large investment groups, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that data that says, yes, this is a this is going to be an asset that we'll continue to appreciate. And now yeah. music is that. And it wasn't that ever before. So Yeah. And it's also a positive thing about the music industry. And you and I are going to talk about a piece in a few minutes um, about some issues that uh, musicians have had with, let's say, record labels, mm-hmm. and we're not bashing record labels. There, there are there are good ones and bad ones, just like anything, and there are good uh, deals and not so good deals. Mm-hmm. But our industry has a long track record of some sketchy things, and <laughs> this is one of those areas where uh, people are starting to get uh, a paycheck. And it's so difficult today 
even more difficult than it's ever been to make a living on just sales streams and downloads. Yeah. It really is. It's really challenging. In order to really, you know, make a good living as a musician, you know, you, obviously you need to grow your base and create good music. But once you've established that, it's got to be beyond the commerce of just the music. It becomes things like you know, touring and merch and sync licenses. And then if you're fortunate enough to be one of these artists that are in the crosshairs of Merck and hypnosis, you could land a pretty decent payday. And if you're later in your career and you're thinking about retirement or you're thinking about Estate your legacy planning. and your family, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And of course, that is why a lot of these people are kind of making that decision. It's like, yeah, do I want to leave this, you know this these this considerable asset and yet you know do, do you want to just leave it like that to to people that aren't necessarily passionate about it or you know they, it's it's not uh, it, it's it, it if you if you when you get to an age when you do estate planning you recognize that it it, it it's a, a hornet's nest that, that sometimes people don't want to leave behind quite frankly yeah. to their heirs and yeah better to kind of clean it up uh beforehand before you yeah. leave the planet and um yeah, yeah, it makes so, a lot of sense. It does, right? It does. You know, the the last thing I'll say on this uh, thing, which I thought was a fantastic piece, by the way, this is from Music Week, which I believe is a UK based um, publication, and and I really like this thing. Um, they they do some really cool reporting. Um, when they were talking to Merck about this, he he started talking about how. Um, the music used to be kind of based on the platinum record. That was your yeah. your goal was to have a platinum record. And he said, you know, just using the United States as a microcosm, you know, with a platinum record, that's a million copies in a country that has 360 million people in it, you know? So our, our customer was one in 360. That immediately tells you, you know, the average person may may have loved your music and was happy to hear it, you know, for free on the radio or on television, but was never putting their hand in their pocket and pulling out, you know, money to pay for it. Well, now there are a hundred million homes in the United States that all have premium paid music subscription services. So our customers gone from being one in 360 to being one in 3.6. Yeah. Really astute analysis there. Yeah. And very, nice take very on interesting that. way of take. Exactly. Okay. And he's right. We, you know, when you and I were working at labels, we were focused on street date and hitting that you know, gold or platinum record and getting that plaque on the wall and that sort of thing. And if you, he's right, that's such a small piece. And now, you know, there are so many digital service providers, you know, uh, there's well over 150 uh, globally in, in all these different territories. And now almost everyone has streaming, whether it's ad-based um, where they're not typically, you know, paying out for it, whether they have a subscription, whether it's through their cell plan or their cable or satellite deal, it's almost ubiquitous of that word. Yeah, it is. Well, and, and an entire generation now has grown up with the notion that they pay for music. Now, sometimes yeah. their parents pay for it or whatever, but that there is a subscription payment for lots of different things, obviously, but, but certainly for music. And, and we were still in the business at the time when that concept was, uh, well, the, we were f afraid that that would never happen, quite frankly, and and here we are, you know, a, yeah. a, a couple of decades later, and it is happening. And so, our what year children, were you and I working together in Universal City? Was that like two thousand? 
uh, I started in 99. So right around there? Yeah, yeah. To, and through, yeah, 99, 2000, 2001. That's when, that's when the, the, the foundation started shaking. And it was like, wow, you know, because you could kind of look down the road. And that's one of the divisions we were in was the folks that looked down the road. Right. Um, and it, the, the, it was pretty scary. Um, yeah. For those, if we you hadn't heard us talk about this before, Mike and I were in a division of Universal. I think initially, and correct me if, if I'm misremembering this, initially it was ECAT, Electronic Commerce and Advanced Technology Group. Correct. And then it kind of split into two divisions, and one of them was called E-Labs. Yes. And um, it was so great. I mean, we worked with some really great people, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I think I started in around 1998, um, or so. And that was the first time I ever heard the term celestial jukebox. Yes. That was a big phrase that we were using at the time, <laughs> which is, you know, essentially what it is here now, which is, you know, a, a, a repository of essentially all the recorded music ever. There's an asterisk by that, not quite, but just about. Um, and, and, and you pay a, a service fee to access that. Um, and yeah, and here we are. It happened fast. I mean, I know in it doesn't sound like it because that was like 23 years ago. Yeah. But I thought that it was a dream. I thought, well, you know, downloads were just coming in. And we thought downloads were going to be around for a long time. But they really, if you look at a chart that shows all the different configurations, you know, cassettes, CD, vinyl, download, streaming, all of that stuff. I think, you know, digital downloads were around the least yes. uh, amount of time. And, and, and that surprises me because we thought that was going to be, you know, ringtones we thought were going to be a, a big deal for a <laughs> Well, they were time. for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have right. music as your ringtone? Uh, I do not. I don't even use I've ringtones. I've had um, Eddie Van Halen's eruption oh. since yeah. I first had my first amped flip phone. And the reason for that is <laughs> if I'm in a loud place, it cuts through. There's something about that, that frequency that you can yeah. hear it even during. Uh, it's almost like you can hear the rhythm of it. Uh, so I recommend if you if you're around loud concerts or construction sites, get get uh, uh, Van Halen eruption as your ringtone from the right. first album. There you go. All right. Well, let's move on. So um, uh, yeah, well, let's talk about the, the the next number two here. Well, we're we're talking a little bit about this, but let's yeah. go with artists that blew up on TikTok. Um, yeah. Oh, actually, but before we do that, you spoke with Chris Castle. That's right. And that's so right. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna play a little. You know, this is getting back to uh, to Merck's kind of comments and stuff. We're gonna get. Back yeah, I'm glad up. you reminded me. I I'd totally yeah. forgotten about that. I had we're, a really nice call with uh, Chris Castle, and we've talked about his website, music technology policy on this show. We've talked about stories that he's written. He's the one that we talk about that's a little sassy. You yes, know, when he, uh, he, when he writes his stuff. So um, he's a friend. I have a great deal of uh, admiration and respect for him. And when we were talking about like what can be done to fix streaming and that funny word remuneration, like yes. how do we, how can we pay people fairly? You know, is it the artist centric model? You know, anyway, um, I had a really nice uh, phone conversation with him, and he kind of cleared some of that stuff up for me. Yeah. So let's listen in. Could you explain the difference between market-centric and user-centric models? Yes. So um, I would just say first, as, a, as an overall comment on both of them, and really all of the different solutions that I've seen so far, uh, is that um, the non-featured 
artists, that would be the musicians, studio musicians and studio vocalists, mm -hmm. right? Get zero. And that's an important thing to remember about streaming altogether is that right. they get nothing. So on the market centric, let's talk about market centric because that's, that's at its core. That's what all of these services base their royalty structure on, right? The revenue may come from advertising. It may come from subscription, but it's essentially divided up the same way. And the way that works is there's some negotiated percentage of revenue which is itself a negotiated term. So it's not just like gross, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a version of gross um, with some deductions. And then there's uh, a, a share of royalties, which is usually in the 50 odd percent range, somewhere between 50 and 60% of this negotiated revenue number, mm -hmm. um, which is then itself divided up based on a formula, which is essentially your streams over all streams in the accounting period. Now, what's important about the per stream concept is that nowhere in these deals do they actually say, and this is true of the user of the market centric deal too. Nowhere in these deals do they ever actually negotiate as a deal point, a per stream rate. Interesting. Right? So yeah. there's an implied per stream rate because in order, if you pay, you know, uh, you know, a million dollars to Universal, Universal has to find a way to divide that up. So they, there will be an implied per stream rate because mm -hmm. they have to have that in order to account to their artists, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no negotiated per stream rate. So back to the user-centric, you know, you would ha in order to make user-centric happen, you would have to have some way to allocate that money on a per stream basis, I think. Mm -hmm. Um and the idea of doing both at the same time where you'd have a market centric and a user centric system existing at the same time on the same service is, is mind numbingly complicated. And, and I have a theory of this, which I call the ethical pool, mm -hmm. which is essentially that same concept, right? Which is rather than try to mix the two together, which I think would be really difficult to do. Yeah. You have the, you get the artist, and I would say also the fan can opt in to um, the the what I call the ethical pool, which is similar to the fan power of royalties with with SoundCloud, where you say, okay, I want to be in this, and I don't want to be in the other one, right? I don't want to be in the market centric, so don't let anyone use my music unless it's going to be paid on the on the on the user centric model. All right. Good stuff. Nice to hear from Chris Castle. Thank Boy, you, He is Chris. a sharp cookie. It. Sharp cookie indeed. So now, all right, now let's go over to Flypaper and let's talk about uh, an interesting article, Five Artists That Blew Up on TikTok First. I was so surprised when I read this. There were a couple of these. I had no idea that they blew up on TikTok first. Um, and we can, we can go through some of these, but one of my favorite ones on here is Priscilla Block. Yeah. And I just think she's fantastic. Um, I love the fact that she's, you know, uh, she's proud of who she is. Um, and yeah, I, I had no idea that she had blown up on TikTok first. I mean, I think the obvious one for me, and I'll, I'll let you chime in cause I'd love to see if you heard of some of these. Um, but I, I, I kind of got a sense that Lil Nas X was yes. because I, I heard about him on TikTok long before, 
you know, um, I saw all the Old Town Road and all the, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, all of that. Um, but were you were you surprised by any of these? Well, all of them. You know, I've heard most of the songs, and I'm like, eh. I'd for, you know, I mean, like everything, the, the business moves so fast. I, you, at least for me, I forget where I even hear things for the first time. And so, <clears throat> but it's super important to, to recognize kind of how, how some, how, I mean, all these songs. So this is Lil Nas X, uh, Lauren Gray, she got a great song called Queen, uh, Priscilla Black, Just About, all, uh, just about Over Block. You. Yeah. I'm sorry, Block. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I'm reading, I'm, I'm scrolling so fast. Uh, Alyssa Trayan, uh, she has a song called Ain't Ever Going Back, and mm-hmm. Alexandra Kay, who's got all the cowboys. Um, you know, you just kind of forget that that the the launch from t- from from TikTok can be absolutely just it's like a rocket blasting off. Like right. the Lil Nas X thing was, I mean, it was so immediate, and it's just fascinating. And there's so many more too, right? Yeah. You and I talked about um, that that really cool video, you know, the Build a Bitch. There was a story mm-hmm. about that that you and I covered. There's every week you and I are talking about people, artists that are grabbing an audience and blowing up from TikTok. Yes, yes. And that that Priscilla Block tune just just about over you is a great song. It's yeah. a great song. Um, so it's just it's, it's remarkable. But when you, and again when you like everything when you kind of look back and you're like, oh, that's right. I mean, I do remember Lil Nas X for sure because that was that was an obvious one and that was that was big. That was really the the first one where I kind of went, wow, that meteoric rise. It was stunning. Um, but you know, it, it's just interesting, like I said, to go back and kind of look at it and go, "Oh, that's right. This is where she started, or where they started." And uh, it's 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 amazing how it, how quickly it can happen. And then yeah. it's amazing how that is translated to even further success, or, or can yeah. be not always yeah. certainly. Yeah, and what I noticed about this is that pretty much all of them, except for what Lauren Gray and Lil Nas X, all the rest of them were country. Yes. And I noticed that country is really strong on TikTok. And I had a friend of mine who is a music supervisor and she told me that country is challenging for sync. You know, so if you're trying to place music in film, TV, games, commercials, that sort of thing, it's not impossible, but it's certainly not as easy as some of the other genres. And so when I see a platform like this, that actually is powerful for country, especially females in country because we've covered stories about how challenging it is to be a female country artist and try to get on the radio. It's, you know, it's, it's really hard and there are people who are speaking up, uh, you know, about it, but you don't get the fair shot, at least not today yet. Um, if you're a female country artist, you know, very few exceptions. And of course, Lil Nas X, who to me is certainly country, but is also lots of other things, and he's had his own fair share of uh, frustrations with the the sort of mainstream country industry, and um, so you could actually say that many of, if not all of these, were almost all country. So, and I don't know if that's representative. Well, Lauren Gray is almost like a Beyonce, you know, yeah, kind of. That's, thing. Oh yeah, yeah, she's she's absolutely yeah. That's right. I, I'm sorry, but but the but, other. But, but you're four, right. I mean, and I wouldn't call Lil Nas X country, although he's done country music. Ish. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is, I mean, he's a superstar. I mean, he reminds me of artists that you and I grew up on uh, that would offend people and, mm-hmm. and they were talented and they would get popular for it. There, there's an old saying, and I don't know who said it, but something like the key to success 
um, is to offend the greatest number of people possible. I think it was attributed to like George Bernard Shaw or something. Anyway, the, the reasoning behind that is I think of artists like David Bowie, Alice Cooper, yeah. you know, Elton John, Kiss, you know, some of these, uh, these artists that just, even Elvis back in the day, yeah. just really upset people a lot. The Beatles with their long hair, you know, that sort of thing. And it's, and it's still true today. There are artists that just rub people the wrong way, but you don't really see until years later how groundbreaking they were, whether it's the Madonnas and Lady Gagas of the world that, you know, every album is a whole different thing. Like you and I talked about uh, Amber Horsburgh and her breakdown um, of an album. uh, The Justin Bieber record. Yeah. Yeah. That, and there was, there was one other one um, where they each campaign for each track and album is a whole different thing. And we're going to be talking about Amber um, in the next story, but I think it's really important uh, that we, you know, tip our hat to artists like Lil Nas X that can use TikTok as uh, a launching platform. Uh, and it's really cool to see TikTok and Roblox and Twitch and some of these platforms that are really democratizing this music industry where you have other places you can break from other than just touring, radio, streaming, etc. Right. And a couple of these artists too. Also, you know, TikTok was kind of a thing that they had some time or they were in a bad spot in their life and they just kind of almost on a whim did it. And, and, you know, again, like a brush fire, it just, just caught on. And so it's fascinating you know, platform and it's interesting the way that things can blow up on it and how quickly and how that can translate over to the next phase of their careers. And yeah, it's, it's here to stay. And will there be new yeah. TikToks and other platforms? Probably. Yeah. Well, if history has shown us anything, it's that, you know, the only thing that's, you know, for sure is change. By the way, this piece was written by uh, Dan Reifsnyder. Um, Dan is a Nashville-based um, Grammy-nominated songwriter. He's also a regular contributor um, to Soundfly and Flypaper. Um, and he has uh, um, several music-related blogs uh, that he's contributed to, as well as his own, which is called songsmithing.net. So do check out Dan Reifsnyder, um, his blog, uh, songsmithing.net. Super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And let's move over to now Hypebot. Uh, this this next story, advice for new artists from Def Jam's VP of Digital Marketing, J.D. Taminski and Amber Horsborg. <laughs> How do you pronounce her last name again? It's Horsburr. 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 I keep wanting to put a G at the end of that. I did too. I did, yeah, I did that when I first met her and she didn't even correct me because, yeah. <laughs> She's uh, too that's kind. What, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, you you've essentially had many of these job, you know, a job like JD has had. You know, it's I again, I as I sit back from from being in the business at a time when I was in the business, I I I'm still amazed at how hard it is or, or how many different things you need to be aware of when you are marketing an artist in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah, it's true and and really what it boils down to, I think if you ask JD is it's about, you know, finding that tribe. It's about, yeah. you know, uh, engaging an audience and growing that audience. That's so much of what this is about. And it's not about gaming the system. It's really more about, you know, optimizing. And I encourage everyone to watch the video uh, yeah. that accompanies this. You know, uh, Amber, you know, is 
amazing. Um, she um, has this school of deep cuts. So if you're into music marketing, um, you can take classes and uh, learn at your own pace, which is pretty cool. She also has a blog um, and a, a podcast that I see from time to time, which is pretty cool. Yes, yeah, so but in this I, in this article, yeah. he, so he he, he kind of gives some some kind of uh, is it five? It's kind of the top or yeah, the top. Well, actually, just three, but the kind of some top things to think about. And, and you know, I wanted to actually get back to something you said. You sure. know, the the the. the the objectives have kind of always been the same when you're talking about artist development and music marketing. But I think what, what just still blows me away is how many different paths there are now to get there and, uh, and yeah. all of these different routes and things you have to consider when you are writing out that marketing plan. And it's just crazy. But so one of the yeah. highlights, he said, be careful when promoting a single if you're not putting equal amounts of emphasis on the artist as a person. Show us who you are, tell us your story, and don't let the music become bigger than you. There needs to be an investment or your fans won't put in the hard yards when the time comes with concerts and merch. Now, yeah. that's always been, that's kind of been a universal thing. Yeah, but it's harder in the streaming world because Absolutely. you're listening to a playlist, and if you're not in the first you know, 15 songs, mm -hmm. it becomes more of a lean-back experience, and you may think, oh, that's a cool song, but you haven't made that connection to the artist, and he is 100% right. That's where the magic happens. And think about it with your favorite artists, the ones that now you buy every album they put out and you go see them every time they come yeah. you know, to town. That happened because you went from a song or two to you connected with the artist and their narrative, and then you became you know, part of that community exactly exactly now the next one is is this is really uh this really speaks to the now to me and he says pick your space where you feel you can thrive the most and own it if you like throwing yeah. out witty commentary on life and pop culture then twitter is probably your best option as an emerging artist who might not have a large support team behind you only focus on a couple of different social media yeah. platforms until you do have that bigger team that is really sage advice because it, it can be overwhelming and you kind of just got to pick a couple, maybe even one. Maybe and, even one. And then just kind of focus on that because it can be so overwhelming when you look at all the options. And so, Yeah, I'm telling you, we've given that advice dozens of times because think about it today, you and I have both played in bands many, many years ago and we know what that process is like. It's so much more challenging today because it's not just writing, recording, touring. It's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, yep. Roblox. I could go on and on and on. There's not enough hours in a day. And what he's saying here is spot on. And we look at our artists like, are you killing it on Instagram? Focus on that. Yeah. Focus on, on, on that. And the problem is you become deluded by trying to do everything. Mm -hmm. And what he mentions here about having uh, a greater team is once you reach a certain level, then you can bring in these teams um, that will handle that for you. Right. They'll do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube for you in your voice if you want them to. Mm -hmm. They'll handle comments and complaints and they'll look at the data behind it. But until you get to that point, uh, a lot of artists today do really well with TikTok. They do really well with Instagram. Um, people think that Facebook is is for older folks and it's kind of dead. Um, I'm seeing some younger artists do very well reaching a crowd on Facebook. There's, you know, Facebook ads are still meaningful. Facebook groups are kind of that 
um, secret to some folks about the power of those groups. You know, it, whatever genre or mood or, you know, whatever you're into, there are Facebook groups for it. And we always tell people, reach out to the Facebook groups, find who the admin is, get a conversation going with them and say, is it okay if I post about my new track? Is it okay to post about my new tour or whatever? If you have that dialogue with them, most of the time they're going to say, sure, but we only allow that on this day, you know, um, and things like that. So he's spot on. You don't have to be great at all of these platforms. Focus on the one and own it. Yeah. And then the last couple of things, acknowledge your fans. Obviously, in this day and age, you can acknowledge your fans, which is great. So make sure you do do that. Excuse me. And then be open to new technologies like we were talking about. It says artists who are willing to put themselves out on these new and growing platforms like Discord will find their efforts paid back tenfold by their fans. So, you know... Yeah, I mean, you know, pick a horse and kind of focus on those, but be open to the new stuff because there's always new things going around the block. And you know, good yeah. advice and and very you know, good again. And the, the whole video with Amber and JD is really really yeah. interesting and worth. You, watching. You'll get a lot out of it by watching. Um, and just to jump back really quickly to acknowledging your fans, mm-hmm. um, I've had a few artists that have failed at this, but have gotten better. Um, you've got fans now that you have a direct relationship with. And if they're commenting on your socials, if they're sending you direct messages, if they're reaching out to you via your website, if you don't have the bandwidth, make sure that someone on your team does to make sure that you're responding to every message that comes your way. These are the last people that you want to ignore and upset. So uh, acknowledge your fans is key and, um, that's why I love Twitch so much is because the fans are on watching their artists perform. And then between songs, the artists are engaging with their audience. And it is, if you haven't been on Twitch, um, go on and check out how some of these artists like Hallocene and Finding Elysium and some of these artists are engaging with their crowd mm-hmm. in a very personal way. It's it's it matters. Really great. That's how you build the base. Absolutely. All right, Jay. Our last uh, article is from Loudwire. Oh if you can oh believe boy. that, it's already here. We are with fourth one already, uh, and this is from uh, Graham Hartman. And boy, this was uh, whew, this was a little yeah. uncomfortable reading this. I it mean, sure nothing was. that we didn't know. Yeah, but uh, musicians warning fans about the music industry, and this references a. Uh, a documentary that I was not familiar with, and we both is shocking. Intrigued. Yes, I know. <laughs> we are documentary fiends, uh, but there is there was a doc, and well, I, at some point we'll post it once we can find out how to find it. Um, yeah, because there, there are seen different pieces of it. Yeah, but it's and, and it came out some time back. Um, I, I think, think it came like in 2014. I want to say. Yeah, it sounds about right. So, so this is um, basically. As it starts, it's no secret that the music industry is filled with countless pitfalls and scams. It's especially difficult to be an artist in the industry, and these successful musicians use their platform to warn fans. So it talks about uh, actually just fairly a bunch of people actually texted me about this. Uh, Billy Corgan was on the Joe Rogan Experience, mm-hmm. and boy, he was talking a lot about some of the pitfalls that he has faced. And um, this is kind of just a, a, a um, kind of a um, a collection of different 
people, uh, different artists talking about it on different platforms and, and what they had to say. And, you know, yeah. boy, these guys, some people have really, really, really been hammered. And they, they talk about seven times musicians battled their record labels. And yeah. I don't know, what were your thoughts of reading this? I mean, certainly it didn't surprise me, but, you know, when you see it kind no. of laid out like this, it's, boy, yeah. I mean, being in to the industry, for. you know, as long as we have, we've, we've heard some of these horror stories. And let me just preface some of this by saying that not all uh, labels are created equal. There's mm. some artists that are, re- or I'm sorry, some labels that are really great advocates for their artists. But there are some experiences that these artists have had where they've been screwed over. And I mean, you just mentioned Billy Corgan. You know, Brett Michaels calls the music business the sleaziest business in the world. You know, he said, you know, it's a business where there are 50 ways to get rich and rock the world, and there's 50 ways to get screwed from just one incident. But this comes back to that documentary that you and I were talking about um, uh, that it's called How the Music Industry Works. And I'm surprised I hadn't seen this before. And, no. and I've seen. I think maybe up to like 20 minutes of it on various sites, but I haven't found the whole thing yet, but we'll, we'll definitely dig that up. But you know, um, Chester Bennington, um, from Lincoln park, uh, God rest his soul is, yeah. is on here. Um, there, there's a lot of folks. I, I saw Bob Lefsetz being interviewed, mm-hmm. um, Irving Azoff being mm-hmm. interviewed and it's sobering, but it's, Again, not every record label is bad, but as someone who is, let's say you're an artist or an artist manager, man, you've got to have a great music industry attorney. You know, um, if you ever want to learn a lot about the music industry on that regard, I mean, definitely check out Donald Passman's book, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Industry. And he did a podcast uh, interview with Bob Lefsetz, which is absolutely phenomenal, um, where they go through like chapter by chapter in the book. And I highly recommend that. It's Bob Lefsetz's podcast, but his interview with Donald Passman. So let's, let's walk through a few of these in this Loudwire piece. Um, you know, we talked about a couple already, but one in here that I wasn't really aware of was this Avenged Sevenfold versus Warner Music. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was at Warner Music, and I remember seeing some of the folks there, but I don't remember um, this particular thing. It says, after signing to Warner in 2004, Avenged Sevenfold released a string of albums with the label before inevitably deciding to terminate their business uh, with the label in late uh, 2016. It's important to note here that the band invoked California's quote-unquote seven-year rule, um, which you'll hear more about in a minute, um, which limits personal services contracts to seven years. So that kind of was the test mm-hmm. of that particular law in California. And, you know, uh, according to this article, as far as they know, this case is still ongoing uh, yeah. with no concrete conclusion. Right. And, you know, just historically, the typical album deals were seven albums, but without a time without without really time being inserted into that so this california law has been used a number of times to kind of um to challenge that notion and another one they talk about is courtney love versus universal and this goes back to she she also invoked that seven-year rule back in 2001 so we're talking 20 years ago wow. um or actually she she went back to december of 1999 so there's this this has been used a lot and and she did settle with universal and a lot of these things end up being settled um, but she had a number of different 
things that she was fighting, including stuff from, from her late husband, Kurt Cobain, and the LLC that Nirvana had set up, and Geffen Records, which was part right. of Universal. So, you know, you kind of got to read about it, but it's, it's uh, you know, we're, again, we're talking, you know, going back well in 20 years ago, a lot of these these lawsuits were started and yeah. and happened, and it's kind of, uh, they, they mentioned uh, Amy Lee here for and Wind Up Records back in 2014. Oh, from Evanescence. From Evanescence, yeah. And um, you know, and I remember again reading about some of this stuff in the day. But when you kind of look at the list, uh, and I didn't, yeah. and, and I and I didn't the one I didn't know about or I completely forgot about was Trent Ve- Trent Reznor versus Universal. Um, and I remember yeah. seeing him in the in the elevator when we were both at Universal. So I don't know if the, if that was kind of and that wasn't really a legal battle. They said that was really just. Um, he had some disagreements about pricing and I think it was in Australia. Um, and he, I remember he told fans like, you should just download this illegally. And of course that really (laughs) upset some people. So it might not have been a, a, you know, like a legal fight, but, um, I didn't remember that one either, but I, I did remember there was more than one artist that was upset with victory records mm-hmm. and they point out a couple of them here. One is uh, a band called a day to remember, um, that won a breach of contract suit after a, like a five year battle with victory. And then in this article, they have a whole section. Just the headline is actually basically everyone <laughs> versus victory. And they have Hawthorne Heights <laughs> taking back Sunday, et cetera. So, um, yikes. Well, and then the one I remember was Prince versus Warner Music, and oh, that yeah. was, a, and that was, of course, you know, that was a, a unique situation, which is where he wanted to release music much faster and much more plentiful than, than really could, than Warner's could uptake essentially and promote with with what the the, the way that they wanted to promote the, the, the way music. that they've and, always yeah, done, it. absolutely, of course, and so. Uh, yeah, so it's really interesting. That was a high-profile one. That was a huge high-profile you know, Remember, he changed his name he changed to the his indecipherable name. symbol, and it was the artist formerly known as, and he wrote slave on his face. And I didn't realize before I read this piece that that started way, way back. You know, It says, what makes this heated dispute so notable is its slow but intense burn. Many news sites and lengthy YouTube videos have reported that Prince had disdain uh, for his label, Warner Brothers, that had been brewing for some time. Billboard places the first fallout in 1977. Yeah. You know, while knee deep in the recording of For You, label executives paid the singer songwriter an in studio visit and made suggestions on his track. Can you imagine how that went down? Oh, God. Uh, Label executives telling Prince uh, what he should be doing with his track. Um, That rubbed him the wrong way, of course, so he responded quite bluntly by kicking them out of the studio entirely. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting that, that, you know, Warner Warner Music had had a deserved history of being very artist-friendly, and there was a number of things that that Warner's did... uh, in terms of Prince's career, one of which was, you know, having their film division release uh, Purple Rain. And, and that, and that was, that was a, that was a push, you know, and that they made that happen. So interesting to see, but again, you know, it's, it's a different perspective and, and different priorities. And these are how these things work. So if you want to, uh, if you're in the re- recorded music industry and you want to hear some dirt, <laughs> go over to the Loudwire article. And, and we're going to, again, we're going to try to find that, uh, the, the full details on the yeah. on that full documentary, which we will post as soon as we do. So, there you have yeah. it. 
And on that note, Jay, we need to wrap up episode number 56. It's time to go Already? outside in the hot or the hot summer heat. It's the end of summer, actually. It's a holiday and, uh, weekend. Absolutely. It certainly is. But also, we want to thank our sponsors. Without them, of course, we could not do this. TiVo Music Metadata, our good friends over at Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, we really appreciate we sure the support. sure do. Absolutely. And Jay, on that note, always a pleasure to see you. Always and folks, a pleasure, thanks my for friend. listening in. We certainly appreciate it. Jay and I do. We know you have lots of choices in podcast land and the fact that you're here listening to us we are forever grateful so have a wonderful week everyone and we will see you next time on the your morning coffee podcast you've been listening to your morning coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business join jay gilbert and mike etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know